All right. Good morning, Calvary Church. Wow, look at that. Hey, uh, one of the things, even this past week, uh, somebody asked me um, who's in town, not familiar with Calvary, want to know a little more about us, and I said what I say to everybody. One of the uh, beauties of our church is that we're a multi-generational church, right? Um, and I think, you know, one of the beauties for us as a multi-generational church is we just got to uh, be served by, right, the gifts of the next generation um, who's coming up into this church and into this faith community. Uh, and that's good. Uh, man, you know, it's just a blessing that uh, the multi-generational, that God doesn't have us all aging out of this thing, that God has another group of young Christians who want to make a powerful impact uh, in their community, in their world. And for those of us who are a little older than them, we have the great opportunity to encourage them and pray for them, uh, man, and just to celebrate them. And they have the amazing opportunity, the, the vitality and the depth and the genuineness and the authenticity of their faith. Uh, is a great inspiration for those of us who have been sitting in church for decades um, just to see the joy of the Lord in people's faces. So, man, for all you guys who are up here, thank you so much for using your gifts. That's what we want to do as a body. As a body of believers, like we've talked about in our vision statement a lot, we want to use our gifts, right, to build the body. And so that's what these guys did here this morning for us, and we're grateful for that. If you want to hear more, about what we're trying to do here at Calories of Church, then I would invite every single one of you who is in the blue chair today uh, to stick around after this service, grab a donut, grab a coffee, and then come back and for, a, I don't know, some period of minutes, uh, we'll be talking about kind of a family meeting part two. What we did a few months ago is we had a family meeting part Uno, uh, where we rolled out this new vision and we talked a lot about, man, building a body, growing as disciples. And this family meeting, what we want to talk about is we want to celebrate that. We want to just share a little bit about how God's works through that. And then kind of roll into that second phase. We don't want to be just inwardly focused. We want to be a church that is a strong body, a strong body of disciples. And through our discipleship and through the care and support we receive from one another, we go outward and we try to spread God's love and truth uh, individually and collectively with those around us. And so today at the family meeting, we'll be talking about, hey, what does that look like for a church, for us personally and as a group to try to reach and impact other people? And so we're going to give some very practical things that you can do today, that you can leave here with something, looking ahead to Easter, a few different things that you can use to encourage your neighbors and reach out to your neighbors and friends. And then we'll be talking about some more long-term things. And so if you want to hear about how we as a church don't want to just make it about us, if you want to hear about how we as a church want to take what God is doing in our body and spread it outward, if you want to hear about what does it look like for us to be on mission and how it can be a part of that, then I'd invite you to stick around for 45 minutes or so afterwards and have some donuts, <clears throat> have some coffee, and we'll celebrate and look ahead and, and think about what God has for us. So that's coming up after this, and then, like we mentioned um, last week on Good Friday, we're going to have a Good Friday service at 2 o'clock here on Good Friday. Imagine that, a Good Friday service on Good Friday. And what we'll be doing, if you didn't hear it last week, there's about five to six other churches that the pastors, we keep in touch, we're friends, we connect, we encourage, we pray for each other. And we're just going to have a chance for our churches to all celebrate Good Friday together and to show in a culture and a climate when there's so much disunity in the body of Christ over so many trivial things, we're going to combine for an hour or so of unity over what is at the very heart and the foundation of our faith. It will be a simple service, but a meaningful service with worship, with scripture reading, with communion, with a communion-focused talk, with, again, a combined group of five to six other people. It'll be about an hour or so on Good Friday at two o'clock here, so I'd invite you to that. And then, if you didn't see the awesome pink Easter egg looking sign when you walked in about Easter. We're going to have two Easter services, one at 9 and one at 1030, and we're just going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, and it'll be an amazing time together. So lots of great stuff that God is doing, and I say that intentionally because a lot of us are working hard and we're trying to be faithful, but man, unless, as the good book says, right, unless God builds a house, we're all working in vain. And the encouraging thing is in this moment, it seems that God's choosing 
as he has for years, to show favor to our church and to work in our midst and to have lives being changed and people drawn to the worship of him, and we're excited about that. We know it's tight in here this morning, and we're going to keep watching, right? Man, how do we continue to make space if we need to? What does that look like? And we'll keep you informed of that, but we're glad that you're here today. So we're going to jump into our text. If you're visiting this morning, we'd love to give you some more information about what we do and how we do things. More importantly than that, we'd love to walk alongside you and serve you in any way that we can, but we can't read your mind. We don't know who you are, and we don't know what's going on in your life or what questions you might have. And so if you would love for us just to partner with you in your spiritual journey, no matter where you are, uh, there's a bulletin you can grab. There's a way for you to fill out a visitor contact card. You can fill in some questions or some spaces. You can drop that hard copy in one of the black offering boxes around the room. Or there's a QR code if you prefer digital. Just hit that QR code and it'll, it'll jump you on to um, a, a digital form where you can provide some information. What we do here at Calvary, if you're visiting, we walk through books of the Bible. We walk through books of the Bible largely paragraph by paragraph, often sentence by sentence. We've been doing that in a little book in the Old Testament called Nehemiah. All right, well, I'm going to save my little who's the shortest man in the Bible joke for another day. It's got to be next week because we only have one more service. But Nehemiah, we've been walking through it, a, a practical book about God's call on your life, about how you figure out that call, what you do, what you face criticism. And we're a couple, two servants away from wrapping this book down. And so we're going to jump back into it today. I will pray, and then we'll move into what God has for us um, in his word. So let me pray. <clears throat> Father, uh, I am just grateful for what you're doing in this season in our church. I'm grateful for people who are showing up and caring for one another and encouraging one another and sacrificing their time. I'm thankful, Father, for all the folks who after working 40 and 50 hours a week are here on Sundays or during the middle of the week just to serve other people and their sacrifice and their commitment. I'm grateful, Father, for the things that you are doing in people's lives as they deal with sin or as they face anxiety and worry and are clinging more deeply to you and you're drawing them and you're maturing them and you're sanctifying all of us, Father. I'm thankful for how you've given us your word and you're not absent. You don't make us guess about who you are or what you want. You reveal it to us. And so Again, this morning, Father, we have the opportunity to go to your word to hear something really, really important that should be at the core of our lives. And so there's nothing I can do to impress this on any of our hearts, Father, and I'm grateful for the way you're still working through this in my own life and my own heart, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will work to deliver the exact message that you want every single one of us to hear from your word this morning, and we'll give you all the glory, and we pray these things in the name of our King Jesus, amen. Well, you know, many times um, in life, sometimes things happen. Sometimes things happen that can cause us to overlook or to miss what something is really to be about, right? There is something to be about something, but something else happens that causes us to get all distracted and all off track and miss what is at the heart and the foundation of this. If we needed an example of that, it's an example we're all probably sick of hearing about, but the Oscars, right? The, yeah, you already know where I'm going. See what I'm saying? Your Honor, I rest my case. Nothing further. The Oscars, right? The Oscars are supposed to be at this time to celebrate, you know, people who've used gifts and, and films and movies and, and artists and actors and actresses, but all that anybody can talk about this past week or however many days it is, is the slap that was heard around the world, right? The slap that was heard around the world. You know, you guys can debate on social media whether it's right or wrong, but, I mean, like, why slap? If you're going to go for it, man, you just knuckle up and pop the dude in the nose, right? Like, if you're going to make a choice, you know, man up, like, pop the dude. Not that you should pop the dude. He shouldn't have. Anyway, lots of, my wife is looking at me like, oh, Peter, children do not slap, right? Anyway, moving on. I'm just distracted what the point of my illustration is to be. See, many times in life, sometimes there's something that's to be about something, but something else happens that distracts us from that or gets us off track from that, like the slap, like the Oscars. And there's something in your life and in my life that our relationship with God is to be about. There's something that at the core of your relationship with God is to be there, is to be the foundation of it. But sometimes and many times that can get lost 
and it can get overshadowed in all sorts of other things. In all of our activity, sometimes as church people, sometimes as Christians, in all of our activity of our faith, we can lose sight of what is to be at the heart of our faith. And maybe for some of us, we've been really, really busy doing churchy things and God things and the right things, but we're busy, but in the activity for our faith, we've lost sight of what can be and what should be at the heart of our faith. That's a possibility and a reality for you. It's a reality and it's a possibility for me. It was a reality and a possibility for Nehemiah and the people that he was leading many, many, many centuries ago. And in today's text, what we're going to see is that Nehemiah realized that could happen. Nehemiah realized that there is something that could happen that could cause the people to be distracted from what the heart of their faith was to be about. And he was committed to not having that happen. We're going to kind of overview. We won't go every sentence and every paragraph of chapters 8 through 10, but we'll pull out the big pictures of those. And so we're just going to kind of think about, okay, where have we been so far for a little bit? And then what did Nehemiah work to recapture? What did Nehemiah want to make sure his people didn't miss out on? Well, you know, if you've missed it, Nehemiah was this guy who heard about a problem. He heard about a gap. He heard about something that wasn't the way that God wanted to be between God's ideal and the real. There was this chasm. And so the chasm was these walls were broken down in Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah felt this tug of God to do something about it. And we've worked through the process that he did to discern that call. We've worked through how he engaged people in that call. And then last week, we talked about how he faced some criticism, right? And kind of some real practical ways. If you've ever faced criticism in your life, uh, last week's sermon, we talked about that. We unpacked that. But Nehemiah and the people didn't give up, right? They, that what they did is what we should do in those moments. They prayed and they pressed on. They prayed and they pressed on. And then finally, after weathering that criticism, they finished the wall. Chapter 6, verse 15 tells about this and it kind of concludes the end of this building project and says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Alal, in 52 days. We're 52 days later, and what Nehemiah felt the tug to do, part of that's been accomplished. The wall's been done, but you know what? Nehemiah doesn't get on his camel and head back to Susa, to the summer house of the emperor, right? Nehemiah sticks around a little bit longer. And in chapter 7 of Nehemiah, it tells, and you can read it this week, it kind of tells what he did next. After the wall was finished, Nehemiah did some things. Here's the first couple of verses that set up what he did. Verse 7, chapters 1 through 4. Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no house had been built. Here's what we saw Nehemiah doing here that he continues to do, right? Nehemiah raises up some leaders. Nehemiah replaces himself as a leader. Nehemiah instills some policies and some procedures. Here's when the wall opens. Here's what you do with the gate, right? And then he, people over time, which you'll see in the last part of this, right, from about verses 6 to the end of the chapter, people then start flocking back into the city of Jerusalem. It's like Florida. It's like you can't stop it, right? Everybody's getting their U-Haul truck out of, like, you know, Shelton, and they're all going to sunny Fort Lauderdale where the birds are chirping and the beaches are nice. Right? It's like that's Jerusalem. There is this influx of everybody comes back to the place. Nehemiah finished the wall. Nehemiah stuck around a little bit longer. He replaced himself. He put policies in place. He put procedures in place. And at the end of chapter 7, the, the people are well organized. They're well governed. They're well protected. But when we turn to chapter 8, Nehemiah is still sticking around. I did, I know you're like, I, I, you know what, I'll just say this like two more times and I won't ever bore you with it again. People are like, wow, 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 whatever, Peter, right? I, but I'll say it because why not? It's on my notes. I, as some of you know, right, um, for a period of my life, for a couple years when I was 
uh, kind of, you know, 18 through, I guess, early 20s, I did EMS uh, in the local area, did a volunteer, did a paid, loved it, right? And as a, if those of you have ever done EMS or paramedics or whatever, um, you, you kind of have a mission, right? You have a job, you go out to a call, you take the patient to the hospital, and then you know what? You, you don't stick around the hospital for the next few months, right? You don't like just go start walking through the hospital, hanging out, right? Oh, let me help you with the light bulbs. Let me do some maintenance. Maybe I'll go over here and cook some hospital food for people. Y your job is pretty simple. When you're done with what you're supposed to do, you drop the person off and then you leave. But for some reason, Nehemiah, when the walls were finished and things were well organized and things were well protected, Nehemiah didn't leave. He sticks around. The guy who came here to build the wall sticks around after the walls are built. Why? Why? Because here's why. Because the reason why is what we said in the first few weeks. What Nehemiah was trying to do was not ultimately about rebuilding the walls. Nehemiah's ultimate goal, his ultimate heart, was not simply to rebuild walls. What Nehemiah's heart was to do was to reclaim worship, to rebuild worshipers. There, there was a smothering of the worship of God. There was a pause on the worship of God. There were spiritually apathetic people in the city because there wasn't safety. And when there wasn't safety and when the city was in chaos, nobody prioritized the worship of God. And so what Nehemiah said to himself is, man, I'm going to build some walls because there needs to be safety, but I'm going to build some walls because there needs to be worship. Because we need to rebuild worshipers. We need to reclaim worship. And that had not yet happened in chapter 7. Nehemiah hadn't yet accomplished what he'd ultimately come to do. There had been lots of progress. There had been lots of work. The, the rebuilt walls looked good. They looked different, but they looked good, and people were engaged, and they knew their roles, and knew their opportunities. There was a ton of activity and busyness and progress, and systems were in place, but you know what? There was still a spiritual vacuum. There was still a spiritual vacuum, and Nehemiah sticks around to work on that. Interestingly, structurally, in the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1 through 6 are about rebuilding the walls, and chapters 7 through the end are about reclaiming and rebuilding worship. Because just because there's activity and just because there's busyness doesn't mean that that's at the heart of what God wants there to be. What God wants is worship. Worth giving. That's what worship is. When we say worship, right, music is one way that we give worth to God, but what worship really is, is worth giving. That we realize God is worthy of worth, and we have all sorts of different avenues and different means and different ways to give that worth to Him. That's what God wants at the heart of my walk and your walk and our walk. And if you don't have a walk with God, what he wants you to understand is his worthiness and his love. Here's what we see from Nehemiah sticking around. That God wants more than activity for himself. He wants worship of himself. God wants more than activity for himself. What God wants is worship of himself. Now, was it wrong that the people were busy building the walls? No, right? That wasn't wrong. That was part of what God had called them to do. But if all they were was busy for God and didn't have a genuine deep worship of God, then they were missing the big picture. They, they were doing what they were called to do, but here's the reality in their story and your story. Every call of God ultimately comes back to be about God. Every call of God on your life, whether he called you to move for a certain reason to serve him or change your career for a certain reason to, ser to serve him or calls you to talk to your neighbor at a certain reason to serve him, right? The end goal is not just you complying with the call. The end goal is God himself. Every tug on your heart to do something for God ultimately is meant 
to come back to be about God. And if we as a church, I, I mean, I'm, I've told you this, and I mean this. This is the most excited I've been to be here in about nine or however many years I've been here. It is. Because I feel like it, we're engaged and there's some of you who, and I know you're tired because you've been serving so faithfully and you're passionately giving your time and you are caring for one another. And we're going to talk about all this afterwards, right? But listen, here's the deal. If all we end up being is an organization that has successfully accomplished a vision statement, we've missed it. We've missed it. And it is important for us to think about this, and it's important for us to be engaged. But listen, if, if we're not individually and together fueled as people who are giving worth to God and moved by the worship of God, then all we're doing is being busy accomplishing a vision statement. Is it bad to accomplish a vision statement? No, because that came out of here. But you know what is at the end of all that? At the end of all that is God. At the end of that is we are working to build a body because God wants us to be a body that is connected and caring for each other. We are working to grow as disciples because what, that is what God calls you to do. And we are working to personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's truth and love, not just so we can have a t-shirt that says we're doing that but so that people around us who are desperate for hope get to hear about God. Every call from God ultimately is meant to come back and to be about God. And the danger is that busy spiritual lives can mask spiritual vacuums in our heart. The danger is that busy spiritual lives have the possibility to mask spiritual vacuums in our heart. So, Nehemiah didn't want that to happen. So, what did Nehemiah do to try to, okay, he's got to restart worship. He's got to restart these people giving worth to God and being about God and focusing on God, not just a building project. And so, what did he do? Well, chapter 7 starts to walk us through um, well, chapter 8 really tells us what to do. And we're going to read about the people doing this, but most commentators and most scholars think that like Nehemiah was behind the scenes setting all this up. And so here's what we read at the end of chapter 7, verse 73, and then moving into chapter 8, verse 8. This is what Nehemiah did to try to restart, kickstart, right? Jumpstart, the worship. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. The seventh month. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Again, most commentators think Nehemiah is the one that set all this up and they're acting in accordance with what he's told them to do. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from Watergate, I keep thinking Nixon, <clears throat> from early morning until midday, I know about Nixon because I'm 50 now and 50-year-olds <laughs> know about such things, before the Watergate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women <clears throat> and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattatea, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Melchizedek, Hashem, Hashbadananana, Zechariah, and Meshalom on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benaiah, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akabab, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelaita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave sense 
so that the people understood the reading. A, a couple of things to pull from this, right? It's interesting where this takes place. This, this Bible conference, this reading of the law of God takes place in an area of the city known as the Watergate. The Watergate would have been, guess what people went there to go do? Oh my goodness, biblical scholars are you all. Yes, they went there to get their water. People need water to live. The Watergate was literally one of the central places of the community, of the, of the activity of their daily lives. It's interesting that this didn't happen in the temple, or in the temple area. And I think what Nehemiah is doing is he's saying, look, look, look. Understanding God and interacting with God isn't something that's just meant to be relegated to the religious place. This is meant to be something that infiltrates every place. And in the place that is the heart of your daily lives, Nehemiah chose and chose to have this Bible emphasis and reading. We heard about this guy Ezra, just a couple of background. He was a priest and he had come to Jerusalem about 12 years earlier. And his big deal was to work on um, the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah did the walls, Ezra did the, the, the temple. You can read about that in a book that he wrote called Ezra in the uh, Old Testament. And it's interesting, help the people understand the law. We read that phrase several times that what these, all these names did, what all these people did is they helped the people understand the law, and here's why. Because as Ezra was reading, the law at that time was written in Hebrew. And a lot of these people listening had been in captivity for many, 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 many years. And this generation that came up, because they'd been held in prisoners of war, many of them didn't understand Hebrew. And so what was being read to them was something that they couldn't understand. And so Nehemiah and these other workers made sure that they would translate what was being read to the people for them to understand it. And then they would explain how to apply it. Uh, just a little bit of interesting exegetical points out of that, but let's not miss what Nehemiah is doing to a group of people who have a spiritual vacuum in their lives, to a group of people that he's trying to kickstart worship. He wants to restore their worship. He wants their legacy to be not just that they built the wall, but he wants their legacy to be that, man, those people worship God. Those people worship God. What, what's going to be your legacy? What's going to be my legacy? What's going to be our legacy? Are our children and grandchildren at our funeral going to talk about, yeah, I mean, they forced me to go to church every Sunday, and they look great on the outside, but man, behind the scenes, phew, it, that's all a facade. Or is our legacy going to be man? My mom and dad or grandma and grandpa went to church every Sunday, and they went to church every Sunday not just to impress people, they went to church every Sunday because, man, they wanted to worship God. Because their heart was for God. Is our legacy going to be, I never saw my parents because they were so busy at church? Or is your legacy going to be, man, my parents poured into me spiritually as a child? Is our legacy going to be busyness without the heart? Is our legacy going to be hypocritical but looks good in public? Or is our legacy going to be, man, they worshiped. They worshiped. They were driven by worship, and the desire to give God worth was the catalyst for how they served and how they loved. Nehemiah did not want this book to simply say at the end of the day, they built the wall, check and done. What Nehemiah wanted this book to say is, man, they built the wall and they worshiped God. Can we be a church that does more than just effectively accomplishes a vision statement? Can our legacy be, man, those people were on mission. Those people knew what they wanted to do. Those people were purposeful in everything that they did for the kingdom of God. And the reason those people at Calvary were like that is because, man, there's something about those group of people at Calvary that they want to have lives that give worth back to God. That's a legacy to chase after. That's something to chase after together, and that's something to chase after in your own life that people will say, that person worshiped God. And what did Nehemiah do to try to bring that, that inflame that ember 
in their lives to make them those type of people. You know what Nehemiah did? Nehemiah called them together and said, I'm just going to give you God's truth. You guys, come here. Come to the water gate. Bring your little, you know, bring your Nalgene because we're going to be here for a few hours. And he just read to them the truth of God. To reflame and to inflame the worship in their life, he gave them truth of God, he gave them truth from God, he gave them truth about God. Nehemiah could have done a lot of things in this moment, right? He could have kind of organized behind the scenes that he gave his own speeches. He could have tried to create this emotional moment. He could have tried to have them move on adrenaline. He said, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to bring you back to truth that is from God and truth that is about God. And here's the second point. That worship of God flows from knowing truth about God. Worship from God flows from knowing truth about God. Now, you can know all sorts of truth about God and never worship God, but you know what? It's really, really hard to worship God if you don't know any truth about God. Worship of God flows from knowing truth about God as we learn who God is, right? And and it's more than just knowing. It's having that seep into the ground of our heart. And as we understand who God really is that creates within us a desire, a proper desire to give worth back to him, this is what drives truth about God, truth from God is what drives worship. Growing up, there was a period of my life where Christmas would come, right? And I don't know how old I was, 8, 9, 10, 11, maybe younger. But when you were kind of in that age group growing up, back when I grew up, there were kind of two different things that, man, I would love to get for every Christmas, right? Every birthday, every Christmas, two different types of gifts that I would love to get. One, and there were cool commercials about these things back in the day. One was I always wanted like a remote-controlled Jeep. You, you know this remote-controlled Jeep you back then? You could buy it at a place called a Radio Shack, a remote-controlled Jeep, and it had cool wheels, and it was green. And here's how a remote-controlled Jeep worked. The little Jeep would be on the ground. I should have brought one up here, Dad. I should have expensed a remote-controlled Jeep. <clears throat> Maybe I'll expense a drone for next week and have that just fly over you. Right? Remote-controlled Jeep. It's this little Jeep thing, and the cool thing about remote-controlled Jeeps is you stand over here. And you have this little box with this little antenna that like went to the roof of your house. And then, depending on how pricey it was, you either had a little steering wheel here or you had little knobs that you can control, right? No wires, not connected, remote control. The Jeep, wherever you turn the wheel or move the thing, the Jeep will go, right? So the Jeep will go, I mean... The Jeep is going in the direction in which the person turning the wheel or the knobs takes it. I always wanted one of those. I had some of those. They were awesome. But they were not the necessarily only good toy in that era because it was this other toy, and I forgot the name of the deal, but it it was this, right, this track. You could make this circle track, this figure eight track, and you had little like uh, matchbox cars that were controlled electronically that you would put on the track. This was a little different because you had this little trigger thing that was connected with a wire. Yeah, a little not so cool because it was just wires, kind of like, right? If your mom and dad really wanted the spring, then, you know, you could get one that maybe didn't have a wire, but I didn't live in Westport. I lived in Trumbull, so I had the wire, okay? (laughs) So, uh, you know, this thing was a little different. The car would be on the track. And when you pulled the trigger thing, the car would just go around the track in the direction it was supposed to go, and it would just go where the track was taking it to go, right? Remote-controlled Jeep that would go wherever the person controlling it caused it, car on a track that would go on the track based on when the person was giving it energy to go. And here's why any of that matters. Because you and I have a choice in our lives about whether we're going to be remote control cars or track cars. And see, for many of us, probably most of us, right, we end up being like remote controlled cars, where what is steering us is, when we think about God, our emotions and our circumstances. That's what's at the wheel. 
And you and I end up over here or over here or over here or really high up or really down low because we're just going where the wheel, the emotions, and the circumstances are taking the wheel and we're just going all over the place. Or we can be like the cars on the track. And the track is truth about God. And the track and the truth about God keeps us in the direction in which we should be going and keeps us headed until the place we should go, which is trust in God and worship of God and love of God. And many of us, the direction in which we go is controlled by emotions and circumstances, and we end up anxious, we end up worried, we end up scared. We don't end up as worshipers. And others of us are on the track of God's truth that just keeps taking us toward a place of trust and of worship because knowing truth about God drives us to the worship of God. So, what, what is the truth that Nehemiah told these people that caused them to move towards worship, right? What was the content of the information, that that, that that spark of worship that had almost been extinguished in their heart was used to inflame it for a season into genuine worship of God. Well, let's keep reading what happens in Nehemiah 8. Next part, verse 9 through 12. So the first eight verses describe to us all the reading, right? All what's happened. And then look at the response of the people, verses 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who is the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they had heard the words of the law. Here's what's going on. Many, some of these people had never heard any of this truth ever in their life. They didn't know what God was like. They didn't know how God wanted them to act. And as they were hearing all of this, they were so broken emotionally because they're like, man, I've been lost. I've missed it. I've not known God. I've not acted the way God wants me to. And that broke them. And it's interesting. Nehemiah tells them, okay, this day is holy. Do not mourn or weep. Now, I loved what Chris shared with us because for some of us, for all of us, being broken when we realize that we haven't complied with what God wants us to do is an appropriate response. To flippantly skim over disobedience to God is not an appropriate response. To ignore it, to not deal with it, to not address it, to try to put a band-aid on it, that's not what God wants. When God confronts you and me with where we have gone astray and where we have failed, he wants us to let that sink in, and he wants us to act differently. Nehemiah is not saying, ah, it's okay. He, he's not overlooking their brokenness. And it's interesting. We're not going to go into this today. It could be a separate sermon. But as the people hear what they're supposed to do and haven't done, you know what happens in the next few hours, in the next 23 days? Man, two or three things that they like, man, we've blown it. We've not obeyed. They repent and they fix it. They obey. They, they practice this, this feast that they're supposed to be doing they didn't know about. They've had all these improper relationships with other people. They break those off, right? They understand what God wanted them to do. They see where they've sinned. And they said, man, we don't want to sin anymore. We want to fix it. And maybe for you, this past three minutes is the reason that you're here today. Because maybe for you, what God wants to say, and I, I, Chris said it, right, is, hey, in your life, before you can get to the, the full worship of me the way I want, you need to deal with some sin that is creating some static that is an obstacle in your life. And maybe for some of you, the reason you're here today is because these people learned and were reminded of things that they weren't doing that God wanted them to do, and that's what God wants you to understand. Some of you know what it is that you're doing that God doesn't want you to do. And as he wants to enlarge the worship of him in his heart, what he's trying to say is, look, that is blocking it, right? 
That, that's like I'm trying to light this fire within you to worship me and to know you, me, and you keep dousing it with this water bucket of sin. And some of you, the only reason you're here today is because God's trying from another angle, another perspective, another approach to say, stop. Stop. And if that's you, you know who you are because you're either mad at me right now, you think I'm judging you right now, or you wish you had never gotten in your car right now. And you're thinking to yourself, hey, can we get to family meeting part two and some free donuts? God wants you to worship him. God wants me to worship him because he is worthy of our worth. And when there's sin in my life, I'm not fully worshiping the way he wants, and I'm not fully the person he wants me to be, and I'm not fully experiencing the joy he wants me to have, and I'm the one who's missing out. God does not need our worship. God's not like they're crying like, oh, they're not worshiping me. God knows that focusing our eyes on what is most valuable and most beautiful is ultimately what's best for us. The people heard their sin, and some of them responded, and they all responded. They stopped it. But, but the reason Nehemiah is telling them not to mourn is because he wants them to acknowledge their sin. He wants them to be brokenness by their apathy, but he doesn't want them to get stuck there. He doesn't want them to breeze past it, but he also knows that we all have a tendency to get caught in condemnation. Have you ever been there? Have you ever done something wrong and you're a Christian and understand that God's forgiven you? But man, that, that is like a weight on your back that keeps dragging you backwards. What we're going to celebrate in two weeks is that it is finished. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But some of us, we are still dragging that with us and we can't move on to the joy of the Lord. And what Nehemiah is saying is, yeah, deal with it, but don't get stuck in it. Right? And he uses this interesting term. He, he says, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Later on, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. A little Bible history that will take two minutes, but maybe it will be worth it. We've read twice already that it was the seventh month, seventh month. And what we said is when you're reading the Bible and there's a repeated phrase, there's something going on. Seventh month. Here's what's really interesting about what's going on. Ready? Here we go. Drink a coffee. We got 45 seconds of Bible history. Dun, da, da, da. In the seventh month, in the law, right around the time frame that it was on this day, in like Leviticus something or other, there is this command that you're supposed to celebrate this feast called the Feast of the Booths and the Feast of the Tabernacles, right? Either one. Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the purpose of this feast, the people would make like little tents in their house. They'd make like, get their little Eno hammocks, and they'd set up like a little tent. And they'd live for a period of time on these little tents, these little straw tents. And the point was this, to remind them that for a period in the Jewish people's history, they wandered through the desert as nomads because of sin. And in that period of time, they were nincompoops. They were ungrateful. They didn't obey. They were like me. Right? But despite all of that, for 40 years, as they lived in their tents in their desert, God was faithful to them. God was never let go of them. He provided for them. And this feast of the booths or tabernacles was to remind them of God's faithfulness to them, even in the moments when they were not faithful to him. That's what was the time period in which they were having this Bible reading. And what Nehemiah is trying to say to him is, look... Right? This is to be a time when you celebrate God's faithfulness to you and his kindness to you and his mercy to you and who he is. And so don't get stuck in condemnation because I don't want you to miss the character of God. Because your condemnation is not going to drive you to worship. But if you, for a minute, can get just a taste, just a taste, of the heart of God and of the character of God. And if that can sink into your heart that has been shaped and impacted by so many things, that has the potential to blow life into an ember of worship and to move you. So, 23 days later, these people get back together. And like, man, we gotta read some more Bible. Right, 23 days later. And they have this worship conference where they read the Bible. And we read about that in chapter 9. And there's some truths from which their worship springs. And here's kind of the last part of our time together today. Just listen to some 
of what they say about God. Verse 6, the people have now read more Bible, right? And uh, here's what they're getting. Let's read what happens. Now, on the 24th day of this month, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 9, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from foreigners and they stood up and they confessed their sins. They dealt with their sins and their iniquities. And they stood in their place and they read from the book of the law of God for a quarter of a day. For another quarter of a day, they made confession. They dealt with it. But then you know what they did? They worshiped. They worshiped. They had a worship conference. And look at the content of what they say, verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. What they're acknowledging here is God's holiness, God's otherness, that there's no one like him. What they're acknowledging is that this isn't just some fairy tale or cartoon or nice story that Grandpa told them, that there is this being who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, who is like nothing else ever that they've known. And he's real. And he's real. And then in the next 36 verses, they overview all the Old Testament. If you want an Old Testament survey in 36 verses, go home, grab your coffee, and read over those, right? And they highlight a few other truths of God that's at the heart of their worship. And I love this, right? Verses 16 through 17. They're recounting how their parents and generation before them were nincompoops, and then they say this. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed above them. But they stiffened their neck and they appointed a leader to return to slavery in Egypt. And then the second part of verse 17 of chapter 9 says this. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That, that comes from Exodus where when God, when Moses was like, God, I want to know who you are. What, what God said to him is, okay, you, you want to know who I am? I am a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast Love. God could choose to reveal himself in any way. God could have said, I'm a God who's disappointed and frustrated. He, he could have said, I'm a God who's distant and cold. I'm a God who is withdrawn and just looking at your performance to make sure you measure up. He didn't choose to reveal himself like this. Instead, what he said is, I'm a God who in this moment right now, I am ready to forgive. I am gracious, and I am merciful, and I am slow to anger, and I am abounding in steadfast love. When, when we put all that together, here's the third and final point we see. The worship-inducing truth about God is that God is holy, faithful, grace-giving, and abounding in love. Let, let me read one other passage that, that explains kind of hits the same point out of Isaiah 55 <clears throat> and it says this, seek the Lord while he may be found. And then it skips down a little bit and describes the character of God. Let him return to the Lord that God may have compassion on him and to our God who will abundantly pardon. Abundantly pardon. For, for some of you, it may be easy for you to understand and to believe that God punishes sin but maybe it's harder for you to believe that he actually has forgiven your sin. For, for some of us, it may be understand that God wants us to be loving to others, but it is hard for you to, to just really accept that God abounds in steadfast love to you. I'll confess something. It is hard for me to sometimes wrap my arms around that. And I think it's hard for me to sometimes wrap my arms around that because I have problems with this next one. It's for some of us, it's easy to accept that salvation is by grace, but it's harder to actually believe that God's love for us is not dependent upon our performance. I get stuck there. I can read Greek. 
I can read Hebrew. I can use all sorts of fancy theological terms that maybe some of us have never heard of. You know what? There are still moments that I believe the lie that God's acceptance of me depends on how well I perform. It's a lie. I know it's a lie. But I'm still a fallen person who can't shake that lie. And when I'm trying to perform to please God, I'm distracted from worshiping a God who is already pleased with me because of Jesus. And those are two different things. And when you are still stuck trying to please God, instead of resting on the grace of Jesus, you're distracted from worshiping a God and giving worth to a God who is already pleased with you because of Jesus. There's this quote that I read, interestingly, this week, and it says this, Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts, I'd even say the improper thoughts of God's heart, that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark, dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. Have you allowed untrue assumptions about God to keep you to, from running to God for forgiveness? Have you allowed untrue <clears throat> assumptions or thoughts about God to shape what you think about God wrongly, which has impeded your worship of God? What we've seen from Nehemiah is he didn't just want people who were busy for God. He wanted people who were worshiping of God. And what we've seen is that God wants more than activity for himself. He wants worship of himself. And the worship of God flows from knowing truth about God. And the worship-inducing truth about God is that God is holy, faithful, grace-giving, and abounding in steadfast love. I'll call the worship team to come up here as we close our service and as they make their way up here. <clears throat> don't check out yet because we got some homework. Here's the application. Here's the homework. We've done something similar before. But three or four things I want you to do. This week, I'm going to challenge you to read Nehemiah 9, verse 17. One verse. Can you just read one verse at least one day of the week? You will make me feel like the best pastor ever. I just, just one verse one day. But I, that's not enough. Nehemiah 9, 17, every day this week, that God is ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What I'd then like you to do, again, we did something like this similar. I want you to list every truth about God from that verse. Get your piece of paper or get your iPad or write in the sand. I don't care. Make a list of every truth about God from that verse. And then what I want you to do on the other side of the page is, you know what? Make a list of the lies that you sometimes believe. Make a list of the lies that you sometimes believe. One of the truths, here's a spoiler alert. Man, God is ready to forgive. God is ready to forgive. And you know what the lie is? He, he won't forgive this. You know what the lie is? If I clean myself up first then God will be ready to forgive me. List the truth, list the lie, and then I'd encourage you to find one way to worship God for the truths that are in that passage. Nehemiah 9, 17, every day this week, make a list of the truths, make a list of the lies related to each truth, and then for each truth, find a way in the next seven days to say, okay, I'm going to camp on this truth, and I'm just going to give God worth for it. I'm just going to give God worth. Next week, we finish up Nehemiah. Then we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together as a community. Uh, but today, let's end our time by singing and responding to some amazing truths about the character of God.